a number of months ago now, I remember, um, we were given a crib from some friends of ours. Malachi had been using uh, a mini crib. We'd gotten a mini crib for him. He very quickly, because he's a big boy, he very quickly grew out of the bassinet, and then he grew out of the mini crib, and then we needed a full-size crib. And we had some very generous friends who had used a crib, an adjustable crib, for their two daughters, and they were willing to give us that crib. So this lovely friend of ours drops off this crib, and it's all in pieces, of course, right? You got the two, the two very long ends, and then the two, you know, shorter sides, and all the screws and pieces, and some springs and poles, because the thing was, one, one of the sides was adjustable, so you could move it up and down, which was great. We were like, ooh, fancy. This is great. We get a new crib. So we get to, put, we get to work at putting this crib together, and because, you know, it's awkward and clumsy, and the pieces are kind of weird, like, you need two people to do it, so... There Danny and I were, trying to put, my husband and I, uh, trying to put this crib together, which is slightly more complicated than trying to put IKEA furniture together. Well, we got about three quarters of the way through the process, so we had put, you know, the one long end, the normal one, uh, with the two sides. But then as we were holding up the last piece, um, we realized that we didn't have the right screws, which meant that we had used the wrong screws for the other side which meant that we had to take apart everything that we had already done in order to put it together appropriately. And that was just one of those moments where you just want to pull your hair out and ask for a do-over, right? You ever have those moments where you just wish you could have a do-over, where you could rewind the clock and go back, where you don't have to undo everything that you've just done. You could just start over. You could just be given that opportunity to have a do-over. Can, can I just try it again? Do I really have to unravel what I raveled in the wrong way? Can I just start over? How many times in life do we wish that we could just have a do-over? Not for our whole lives, but, you know, just for moments. Just for moments, when, when we come out of a conversation thinking, oh, why did I say that? Shoot, I wish I could do that again. Or, or more often than not, it's, oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. But you just didn't think of it in the time. How often do we look back and think, I should have known better. I wish I had responded or reacted differently. I wish I had realized what was going on. I wish I knew now what I knew then. I wish I could start over. I wish I could just press the reset button on this one thing in my life. I wish I could get a second chance. Well, the passage we're reading this morning is all about this kind of thing, getting, getting a second chance of sorts. And although this, you know, this text, as we've been talking about in Jeremiah, is centuries old, archaically old, as we find as we read through it, perhaps by God's Spirit, it still has something to say to us today. So let's dig into Jeremiah 23. We're looking at Chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got an app on your phone, you can open that up. And the words will also be on the screen. Starting at verse 1. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for your evil, for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, 
where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say instead, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to look at this passage in four chunks today that kind of all hold together, sort of maybe like four sides of a crib, if we can think of it that way. The problem, the response, the solution, and the resolution. Okay, problem, response, solution, resolution. And these four things hold together, really they have to hold together for us to truly understand God's plan and God's purposes, for God's plan for Israel and for us to be clear which we'll see as we go along. So first, the problem. 23 verse 1. Woe to the shepherds, says the Lord, who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Now, I don't know about you, but I always really love it when a Bible verse starts with woe. Whoa. I think of these Shakespearean actors in Hamlet. Woe is me to have seen what I have seen, right? It's very, like, sorrowful. But in this passage, the the tone has more of a foreboding quality. Jesus actually used a similar phrase when he was speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Right? So woe is a little bit more angry, a little bit more upset. Six times he says it in just one chapter. He really just goes off on them for their, their lack of mercy, for their greed, for their inability to be transformed on the inside, because for the Pharisees, of course, it was all about an outward show. Um, oh, is my mic cutting out a little bit here? No, it's not, it's fine? Okay, Tim says it's fine. He does this, that means I keep going. Okay. Um, <laughs> Jesus was meek and mild, you know, we say that a lot, but boy, did he have a bone to pick with people, particularly leaders, when they misuse their authority. God, in the Old Testament, is not so different. And Jeremiah here makes it pretty clear, as one scholar has put it, that at the end of the day, the ordinary people of the land, although a lot of times in Jeremiah we see him sort of chastising and and giving warnings of judgment to all the people of Israel, here in this passage, it's pretty clear to us actually that the ordinary people of the land were really the victims of greed, greedy and oppressive governments by, by shepherds who cared very little about them. Woe to those shepherds, those kings and leaders who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Don't miss that. The sheep of my pasture, he says. And this is an image that we get quite frequently in the prophetic books, this image of God as a shepherd who watches over his sheep. It's actually a very humble image because a lot of other nations look down on shepherds and herdsmen as sort of beneath. But here God actually uses it for himself. He uses this humble imagery for himself. God is the shepherd 
who has placed Israel, his sheep, in the land which is his pasture. In other words, the land does not belong to Israel. The people of Israel, and, and specifically the kings of Israel, were tasked with stewarding it. Stewarding the land and stewarding the people within it. Kind of like workers in someone else's vineyard, which we know Christ used later on in the New Testament. People that were employed by God to represent him, to bear his image in that land, as we've talked about in previous weeks. To care for the land and to care for the people as he would. As he would. So the Lord never gave Israel the land as a sort of possession that they should just hoard to themselves. They were given prime land in a very prime and desirable location for the purpose of being a blessing. Being a blessing. We cannot read our Old Testament scriptures and miss this because it changes the framework for how we look at our world even today, how we look at our role within the world today. When we look at the geopolitical religious chaos happening in modern-day Israel, that's gone for centuries, but has recently become very tragic. There, there's no biblical framework for victory in this conflict. When we see claims for land ownership in the name of entitlement and, and the destroying and the scattering of God's people on either side of a conflict, the loss of lives and evil that's shown by using people as collateral damage. This is not in any way a, a God imaging or holistic shepherding of his property, if I can put it that way. The purpose, as we've talked about in previous weeks, the, the purpose of God's people, the citizens within his nation, within his kingdom, was to represent him, to be his ambassador to show the world what this God was like, and so doing, to seek the welfare of the people, not just within the land, but outside of it. And while doing that, to steward the land on which they live. Think of it this way. Imagine that you own a second home, okay? Maybe somewhere in the middle of Langley, which makes you very privileged, just saying. Imagine you own a second home, and you want to rent it out to people. So you, you know, put some advertisements up, and you end up renting out that beautiful space, it's a beautiful home, uh, to some college students maybe, and this is not to throw college students under the bus, I'm just using an example, some college students who initially seem very trustworthy and responsible. So you sign a rental contract with them and they start living there. But a couple of months into the contract, you realize that these tenants are not taking care of your home at all. They're not mowing the lawn, there's, there's bottles and cans everywhere, they clearly haven't taken out the garbage in weeks, they've got three dogs living with them rather than the one that you allowed them to have. There's stains on the carpet, there's paint markings and cuts on the walls, and not only that, but your neighbors even are starting to complain about all the noise and the chaos and the mess that they're seeing. They look at your renters and they start judging you for having put them there. Which is actually the worst part, see, because the renters are in some way a reflection of you. You put them there. You entrusted them with that responsibility. You're the one that's in charge of overseeing their behavior. And your reputation is being sacrificed because they aren't holding up their end of the contract. Can you see maybe my God might have been a little upset 
a little bit upset with Israel, who had for centuries, particularly the kings of Israel, but who for centuries had misled, misused, killed and corrupted and scattered the sheep of his pasture, his sheep in his pasture. Exile was inevitable, right? If the renters are trashing the camp, you got to kick them out. Exile was inevitable. It had to happen. But here, here's where we get the response. Here's where we get the response. What does God additionally do when the people he's hired aren't doing the task for which they were assigned? Well, as we heard last week, if you'll remember the rainbow analogy of, of the bow sort of pointing up now towards heaven, this is a God who over and over and over, although consequences need to happen, over and over, God shows that he's the kind of God who will ultimately take on the weight of his people's failures onto himself. He'll step in, and he's going to do something about it. Like in the story of the potter, God takes the clay and reshapes it. He remolds it into something new. He doesn't just throw the clay away. He takes it, and he reshapes it. He says in verse 3, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. I myself will do this. Out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. Where have we heard that language before? I, I know you all know it. You're just not saying it. It's fine. For starters, at the beginning of creation. With the man and the woman in Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. But not only there, he said it to Noah again. In Genesis 9, be fruitful and increase in number. Because a new thing was going to be happening. He said something similar to Abraham. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. This language of being fruitful comes up actually quite frequently in Scripture. And it's, it's a shout-out back to the beginning of God's story with his people. Essentially saying that after centuries of rebellion, after centuries of rebellion, God would step back in and let them have a do-over, start something new. Anytime we see this, see this language, it, it means that God is doing something new. God is enabling a sort of new creation, a new beginning. Some of you have been reading through Jeremiah and I have no doubt that at times it is an exhaustive read. It's hard to read through some of these judgments over and over and over, all the warnings and prophetic statements. God bless you for your efforts. But really, after, after reading those kinds of passages, you get to one like this, and it's a breath of fresh air. Why is it a breath of fresh air? Because God's stepping in. God's finally stepping in and doing something about it. And how many of us here today maybe need to hear that same thing? That God is stepping in and doing something. Something new. Is that not what we all need, really? A reminder that, that in our suffering and in our pain and in our trials, whatever they may be, that in our, our wilderness wanderings, God is doing something new. Something different, something creative, something unique, something out of the ordinary, mysterious perhaps, something unfamiliar, something that will enable us, it will enable us 
to better flourish as his people, whether we can grasp that or not in the moment. This is the message he's sending to the Israelites. There's, there's going to be pain, but there's also going to be a do-over, a fresh start, something new. Yes, the people would return to the land, but even then it still wouldn't be enough. That's not the end of the story. As one scholar put it, the end of exile would be a fresh start for God's plan, for the world and for his people, but in ways that his people could not yet dream of. There had to be more to the story. And this is where we get to the solution. Verses 5 to 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So we're, we're talking here, right, about an extension of King David's family, someone from his lineage. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. The Net Bible writes this for verse 5, I, the Lord, promise that a new time will certainly come. There's going to be a new king, a new king with a new kingdom that will suit this king and a new time and a new era that will usher in this new king. There's going to be a king whose literal name will be the righteous Lord. The Lord who, who is our righteousness, Yahweh, the righteous provider. There's a lot of ways that you could render this in the Hebrew. But the key here is that God himself will be their king. The message translation says it this way. This is the name they'll give him. God who puts everything right. The God who puts everything right. The God in whose kingdom everything works the way it should. Everyone's treated as they should be. Everyone's taken care of. And no one is left behind. No one is lost. Where systems don't fail you and people don't neglect you or abuse you. Where everyone is kept safe with the shepherd. The God who puts everything right. The God in whom the story is, is complete and fulfilled because he's the only one who can hold it all together. So really, this, this idea of a fresh start, a new start, is really only a fresh start to us from our limited perspective. To God, this is simply who he is. He's exuding fresh beginnings. He's exuding new starts. This is who he is. It comes out of his very nature. He is the God of new beginnings. He's in the business of new creation, of new beginnings, of continuity, of follow-through, and a future all holding together. Like four sides of a crib. It all hangs together. Your life, my life, the life of the world holds together in him. And what he assured Israel and what he assures us is that there's a long-term solution in mind. Jeremiah writes in chapter 30, prophesying, Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Wait, they will serve God and a king. God and a king. A new king. A king who actually connected himself to these prophecies when he said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. 
just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, who do the sheep belong to? Who do the sheep belong to? My sheep, he says. My sheep. You are mine. Just as the Father is in me and I am in the Father, his sheep are also my sheep. What then is your only comfort in life and in death? That you belong to your shepherd. That you are a sheep in his flock. That you belong to him. Brothers and sisters of the living God, you have a shepherd. You have a shepherd. You are not wandering in your wilderness journeys on your own. You belong to him. You belong in his flock under his care. You belong there. You belong there. Why? Because he's already assured you of your place in his flock by the simple fact that he laid down his life for you. You were wandering away and he left everything else to come and find you. This is what our passage, I'm convinced this is what our passage is reminding us of today. God's people needed a true shepherd to lead them. A human shepherd simply wouldn't do it. God's people needed a true shepherd, a shepherd who would go endless miles, leaving the other 99 to make sure that his lost sheep were found. Someone who would go to unimaginable lengths to make sure that his sheep would never be somebody else's sacrifice, but instead to put his own life down so that his sheep could live. This was God's perfect, long-term, future-oriented, unfailing, never needing to be repeated solution for his people's failures, for the sin and the brokenness that defined his people's existence, a solution that would pave the way for a new beginning, a do-over, a fresh start, a new resolution, the last piece where God is resolute in what he decides to do. He says to the Israelites in verse 7, no longer would they look back on the Exodus as the key story for God's activity among them. He was going to actually bring the descendants out of, of Israel, out of the nations, to live in their own land. So it would be kind of like a, a new Exodus, but again, not like an Exodus that they would have imagined. A new kingdom implies that there will be some new tenants some new and unexpected citizens of a new kingdom, new workers in the vineyard that serve and worship this new king. It's, it's kind of a coming home party, but the house and the atmosphere and the company are entirely new. The only constant is the host who's waiting for us to join. Like the father in the prodigal son's story who never stops waiting for his child to come home. Israel had only remembered God, had only been thinking about God as the God who took them out of Egypt. Those were the good old days. Those were the remember when days. Those were the days when God did things among us. What they lost was a view of where it was all going because they got too caught up in the past. They got too caught up in the stories of old. They forgot 
to see where it was all going. They lost the other three sides of the crib. A recognition of the whole story, past, present, and future, because acknowledgement of the problem stresses the importance of a solution. And how things get resolved is key to understanding the weight of the problem, right? These things have to hold together. For us to understand where we've come from, we have to know where we're going. For us to know where we're going, we have to understand where we've come from. This is why as Christians, we are people of the book, of the story. We don't live as Christians based on some moral values. We live as Christians based on a story of where we've come from and where we're going. Even for us, although we exist in the reality of this solution that God has presented to us, we actually still wait for the full resolution for the beginning that will never end. So perhaps this morning, this message begs the following question. Knowing that our God holds all past, present, future, problem, solution, resolution in his hands, and trusting that he is our shepherd king who seeks to guide us and to tend to us and to nurture us and to care for us, Knowing those things, what in your life today needs resolving? What in your life today needs resolution? How might you be feeling a need for a homecoming, a fresh start, a blank slate perhaps, a do-over? And how might the shepherd king, who shepherds his sheep in his pasture with tenderness and compassion guide you in that. Looking outside of ourselves, perhaps, what would be God's word of resolution or, or new beginning for the great conflicts and the tensions of our time? For the culture wars, the polarization, the, the pitting of one side against another, which we talked briefly about a couple weeks ago, for the mental health crisis, for the lack of humility and grace on social media and the news, for, for the physical and verbal bombing of hatred and disdain. How we have to first do our own inward work in order for us to see outside of ourselves and respond to the problems that we see and work towards a solution or even resolution in a way that images our God. To be a people who truly live like we are his sheep and Sheep in the pasture under his care. How do we image him in the way that we respond to tensions and conflicts? Things that need resolution. Perhaps it looks something like this. These are six simple encouragements that a pastor down in Queens, New York, uh, his name's Rich Villadas, recently posted to his church as a helpful response to the conflict in Israel-Palestine. And uh, Amanda, can we just get those those words up there, and perhaps these steps can guide us today, not just in a posture towards, towards that conflict that's happening right now in Israel, which is very much in our faces um, for good reason, but, but in whatever trial we find ourselves facing, perhaps we can take this posture. We can first pray. We can pray for those who are suffering and those who are mourning. We can also pray for those who are doing the harming. We can pray. 
We can lift these things up in prayer. It should always be the first thing that we do. Second, we can grieve. We can grieve the pain in the world. We don't have to look at it and, and instinctively be angry. We grieve it. We grieve the pain that's in the world. And, and we aren't numbed by the overwhelming nature of it. It's very easy to start growing numb to it because we're distant from it or we don't know it, we're not close to it. Maybe somebody else's pain just feels too far away. We can be overwhelmed by it, but then we end up numbing ourselves to it because it can be very overwhelming. No, we, we pray and we grieve. We grieve. We do this. And then thirdly, we, we humble ourselves. We recognize the need to be humble in our own judgments and recognize that some situations are far more complex than we realize. We aren't quick to make judgments. Fourth, we discern. We discern the narratives that we hear, the things that people say, and we're on guard against powers and voices that seek to deceive us and to divide us. Right? We don't go into those spaces. Fifth, we remember. We remember our allegiance to Jesus, to our shepherd king, whose kingdom we belong to, where the whole world is a holy land that belongs to him. It's his creation. It's his temple. It's his holy land. And we remember that we are his sheep in his pasture. And then lastly, with all of that in mind, we do work for peace. And we're actually going to talk about this topic a little bit more in our Advent series. So I'm going to hold it there. These are things that we can do knowing that we serve a God. We can do these things confidently knowing that we serve a God that holds the whole picture in mind. Beginning, middle, and end. Problem, solution, resolution. He holds it all. All sides of the story are held in him. We can read scripture and we can say, oh yes, this is what God is like. Oh yes, this is who he is. Oh yes, this is how limitless his patience is. Oh yes, this is what angers him appropriately and why he's appropriately wrathful towards the evil that we see in the world by human beings who are supposed to steward love and care. Oh yes, this is what breaks his heart and why my heart should also break for these things. Oh yes, he sees the whole picture. This is who he is. We can work for resolution whether it's in our own lives or in the lives of others, while entrusting the beginning, middle, and end to him. It's why we celebrate and remember the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord. He who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The sacrificial shepherd king who holds and keeps and guides us. The king who sees the problem, responds to the problem, solves the problem, and brings resolution. He can do it all. He does it all. The king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Would you pray with me? Living God, your, your word never ceases to humble us. 
At times, Lord, we don't often know what to do with these words that we read, but we thank you for your Holy Spirit who enables us to to read them, Lord, hopefully through the lens through which you would have us read them. And we do thank you that by your Spirit we are able to receive from you, from your word, to hear from you. And I do pray, Lord, that each one of us in this space will have heard you this morning in some capacity. Lord, and that you would inspire us by your Spirit to remember that you are our shepherd king who holds all the pieces together, who holds all of our lives. May we work to image you. May we be your witness bearers. May we be your workers in your vineyard and bring you glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.